Chapter 2, Part 9 of Our Village, Volume 1 by Mary Russell Mitford Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, 2020 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume 1 Walks in the Country, Part 9 The Wood April 20th Spring is actually come now, with the fullness and almost the suddenness of a northern summer. Today is completely April. Clouds and sunshine, wind and showers, blossoms on the trees, grass in the fields and swallows by the pond, snakes in the hedgerows, nightingales in the thickets and cuckoos everywhere. My young friend Ellen G is going with me this evening to gather wood sorrel. She never saw that most elegant plant and is so delicate an artist that the introduction will be a mutual benefit. Ellen will gain a subject worthy of her pencil, and the pretty weed will live. No small favour to a flower almost as transitory as the gum cistus. Duration is the only charm which it wants, and that Ellen will give it. The weather is, to be sure, a little threatening, but we are not people to mind the weather when we have an object in view. We shall certainly go in quest of the wood sorrel, and will take May, provided we can escape May's followers, for since the adventure of the lamb, Saladin has had an affair with a gander, furious in defence of his goslings, in which rencontre the gander came off conqueror, and as geese abound in the wood to which we are going, called by the country people the pinge, and the victory may not always incline to the right side, I should be very sorry to lead the soldan to fight his battles over again. We will take nobody but May. So saying, we proceeded on our way through winding lanes between hedgerows tenderly green, till we reached the hatch-gate with the white cottage beside it embosomed in fruit-trees, which forms the entrance to the pinge, and in a moment the whole scene was before our eyes. "'Is not this beautiful, Ellen?' The answer could hardly be other than a glowing, rapid yes. A wood is generally a pretty place, but this wood... Imagine a smaller forest, full of glades and sheep-walks, surrounded by irregular cottages with their blooming orchards, a clear stream winding about the brakes, and a road intersecting it and giving light and life to the picture, and you will have a faint idea of the pinge. Every step was opening a new point of view, a fresh combination of glade and path and thicket. The accessories, too, were changing every moment. Ducks, geese, pigs and children, giving way, as we advanced into the wood, to sheep and forest ponies, and they again disappearing as we became more entangled in its mazes, till we heard nothing but the song of the nightingale, and saw only the silent flowers. What a piece of fairyland! The tall elms overhead just bursting into tender vivid leaf, with here and there a hoary oak or a silver-barked beech, every twig swelling with the brown buds, and yet not quite stripped of the tawny foliage of autumn, tall hollies and hawthorn beneath, with their crisp brilliant leaves mixed with the white blossoms of the sloe, and woven together with garlands of woodbines and wild briars. What a fairyland! Primroses, cowslips, pansies, and the regular open-eyed white blossom of the wood anemone, or to use the more elegant Hampshire name, the windflower, 
were set under our feet as thick as daisies in a meadow. But the pretty weed that we came to seek was coyer, and Ellen began to fear that we had mistaken the place or the season. At last she had herself the pleasure of finding it under a break of holly. Oh, look, look, I'm sure that this is the wood sorrel. Look at the pendant white flower, shaped like a snowdrop and veined with purple streaks, and the beautiful trefoil leaves folded like a heart. Some the young ones so vividly and yet tenderly green that the foliage of the elm and the hawthorn would show dully at their side. Others of a deeper tint, and lined as it were with a rich and changeful purple. Don't you see them? pursued my dear young friend, who is a delightful piece of life and sunshine, and was half inclined to scold me for the calmness with which, amused by her enthusiasm, I stood listening to her ardent exclamations. "'Don't you see them? Oh, how beautiful! And in what quantity, what profusion! See how the dark shade of the holly sets off the light and delicate colouring of the flower!' and see that other bed of them springing from the rich moss in the roots of that old beech tree. Pray let us gather some. Here are baskets. And so, quickly and carefully, we began gathering leaves, blossoms, roots and all, for the plant is so fragile that it will not brook separation. Quickly and carefully we gathered, encountering divers' petty misfortunes in spite of all our care, now caught by the veil in a holly bush, now hitching our shawls in a bramble, still gathering on in spite of scratched fingers, till we had nearly filled our baskets and began to talk of our departure. But where is May? 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 No going home without her. May? Here she comes, galloping of the beauty. Ellen is almost as fond of May as I am. What has she got in her mouth? That rough, round, brown substance which she touches so tenderly. What can it be? A bird's nest? Naughty May. No, as I live, a hedgehog. Oh, look, Ellen, how it has coiled itself into a thorny ball. Off with it, May. Don't bring it to me. And May, somewhat reluctant to part with her prickly prize, however troublesome of carriage, whose change of shape seemed to me to have puzzled her sagacity more than any event I ever witnessed, for in general she has perfectly the air of understanding all that is going forward, May at last dropped the hedgehog, continuing, however, to pat it with her delicate cat-like paw, cautiously and daintily applied, and caught back suddenly and rapidly after every touch, as if her poor captive had been a red-hot coal. Finding that these pats entirely failed in solving the riddle, for the hedgehog shammed dead like the lamb the other day, and appeared entirely motionless, she gave him so spirited a nudge with her pretty black nose, that she not only turned him over, but sent him rolling some little way along the turfy path an operation which that sagacious quadruped endured with the most perfect passiveness, the most admirable non-resistance. No wonder that May's discernment was at fault. I myself, if I had not been aware of the trick, should have said that the ugly rough thing which she was trundling along like a bowl or a cricket ball was an inanimate substance, something devoid of sensation and of will. 
At last my poor pet, thoroughly perplexed and tired out, fairly relinquished the contest and came slowly away, turning back once or twice to look at the object of her curiosity, as if half inclined to return and try the event of another shove. The sudden flight of a wood-pigeon effectually diverted her attention, and Ellen amused herself by fancying how the hedgehog was scuttling away, till our notice was also attracted by a very different object. We had nearly threaded the wood, and were approaching an open grove of magnificent oaks on the other side, when sounds other than that of nightingales burst on our ear, the deep and frequent strokes of the woodman's axe, and emerging from the pinge we discovered the havoc which that axe had committed. Above twenty of the finest trees lay stretched on the velvet turf. There they lay in every shape and form of devastation, some bare trunks stripped ready for the timber carriage, with the bark built up in long piles at the side, some with the spoilers busy about them, stripping, hacking and hewing, others with their noble branches, their brown and fragrant shoots all fresh as if they were alive, majestic courses the slain of today. The grove was like a field of battle. The young lads who were stripping the bark, the very children who were picking up the chips, seemed awed and silent as if conscious that death was around them. The nightingales sang faintly and interruptedly, a few low, frightened notes like a requiem. Oh, here we are at the very scene of murder, the very tree that they are felling. They have just hewn round the trunk with those slaughtering axes, and are about to saw it asunder. After all, it is a fine and thrilling operation, as the work of death usually is. Into how grand an attitude was that young man thrown, as he gave the final strokes around the root, and how wonderful is the effect of that supple and apparently powerless saw, bending like a ribbon, and yet overmastering the giant of the woods, conquering and overthrowing that thing of life. Now it has passed half through the trunk, and the woodman has begun to calculate which way the tree will fall. He drives a wedge to direct its course. Now a few more movements of the noiseless saw, and then a larger wedge. See how the branches tremble. Hark how the trunk begins to crack. Another stroke of the huge hammer on the wedge, and the tree quivers as with mortal agony, shakes, reels, and falls. How slow and solemn and awful it is. How like to death, to human death in its grandest form. Caesar in the capital, Seneca in the bath, could not fall more sublimely than that oak. Even the heavens seem to sympathise with the devastation. The clouds have gathered into one thick, low canopy, dark and vapoury as the smoke which overhangs London. The setting sun is just gleaming underneath with a dim and bloody glare, and the crimson rays spreading upward with a lurid and portentous grandeur, a subdued and dusky glow, like the light reflected on the sky from some vast conflagration. The deep flush fades away, and the rain begins to descend, and we hurry homeward rapidly, yet sadly, forgetful alike of the flowers, the hedgehog, and the wetting, thinking and talking only of the fallen tree. 
End of chapter 2, part 9